This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. We live in a world of illusion, and it's a desperate time. Over the past few hundred years, we have become gradually more and more addicted to material until finally, like caterpillars, we are literally eating our planet to death. Well, what does that have to do with today's guest? We shall find out in a moment. We have Richard Sclove with us. Richard's new book, incredible and dynamic and powerful, is called Escaping Maya's Palace, Decoding an Ancient Myth to Heal the Hidden Madness of Modern Civilization. That hidden madness is a place where you live and I live, we all live, and we're going to try to explore how to escape from it today, to first dimensionalize it and understand what it is, where are we trapped? And then to go beyond that and explore some ideas about how to get out of that trap. Richard has been a senior staff member at the Mind and Life Institute, which was co-founded by the Dalai Lama. He earned his PhD in political theory at MIT. He held a postdoctoral fellowship in economics at the University of California. Uh, he has been honored by the American Political Science Association for his book, Democracy and Technology. And he is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And despite those heavy duty credentials, he's also terribly interesting and fun to talk to. So Richard, welcome to Dreamland. Thank you, good to be here. Well, good. Uh, let's start by talking about what Maya's Palace is. And why don't you begin? Because Maya's Palace, folks, is something in, in one of the, probably the single most extraordinary text mankind possesses. It's called the Mahabharata. And some of you may know the Mahabharata. Some of you in this on this show, I wouldn't be too surprised if quite a number of you have read the whole Mahabharata uh, and certainly parts of it. Um, Richard, can you tell us a little bit about your, first about what the, let's just start simply, what is the Mahabharata? <laughs> the Mahabharata is a, an ancient Sanskrit myth uh, out of ancient India, and it's sometimes described as one of the world's longest books. It's, it's uh, total length is about seven times the length of the Odyssey and the Iliad put together. And it's basically a, you know, a giant epic about a war. And it's sort of what goes on before the war, the war and what happens after the war. Uh, but uh, there's a, a key episode in it called, uh, that involves a, a palace of illusion called Maya's Palace. And I use that as a metaphor for describing things we don't understand about our own society in the modern world. The only the other thing I'll say about the Mahabharata in terms of people perhaps being able to relate to it is there's another ancient Indian text that's better known in the Western world called the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, 
the Bhagavad Gita, for instance, uh, figures prominently in the new Oppenheimer film because Oppenheimer was very taken with the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita is a tiny section of the giant epic that's the Mahabharata. So in the West, the Bhagavad Gita is the part of the Mahabharata that's best known. Now, it's interesting that it would be. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why it is? Uh, it, Bhagavad Gita, I've read the Bhagavad Gita. I think a lot of people in the West have read it, but I've been understandably, I think, intimidated by the whole enormous journey, although I have read significant parts of it as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the Gita? Well, the, the Gita <clears throat> works, a, work, though it's a, a, a section of this giant epic, it works quite well as a standalone text. It's only, in English, it's only typically about 80 pages long. It's basically a dialogue between a warrior named Arjuna and uh, his charioteer named Krishna. And it, it, this dialogue takes place as a, a giant battle is about to begin. And Arjuna has reservations about fighting in this battle because on the other side are relatives and elders he has a lot of respect for. And Krishna wants to explain to him why it's his duty as a member of the warrior caste to engage in this battle. And uh, he proceeds, though, to give Arjuna wonderful instruction in three paths of yoga, of, of spiritual self-realization. And, uh, and then tops it off by saying, uh, you know, Arjuna, you think of me as your charioteer, but I've been keeping a secret. I'm also the God who creates and destroys the universe. And in case Arjuna has trouble believing that, Krishna manifests himself as the entire as the creator and destroyer of the cosmos, which Arjuna can handle for about 30 seconds and then said, okay, that's enough. That's as much as I can handle. So that's that's basically the Bhagavad Gita. Very, very interesting that that would be the part that is of such is so popular in the West. Well, the, the other thing about it, while it's on the surface, it's a story about a warrior who's not sure he wants to engage in what will in what will be a very destructive battle. It's widely uh, the, it's widely read as an allegory of the struggle between the ego, the less the smaller self, and the soul for supremacy in an individual person. So this war is kind of a understood as a metaphor for the struggle for spiritual self-realization. And that's that's the basis on which it's become popular. Now, let's back up a bit and talk about how it is that they have come to this battlefield, which is the most striking part of the story, in my opinion. So tell us a bit about the, the beginnings, the days and weeks before battle, which I believe involves a rather unfortunate dice game. Yeah, um, and it's it's these period before the battle that I'm going to that I, I'm going to use as a lens for going on to explore what might have gone wrong with modern civilization. But uh, the basic setup for the entire Mahabharata is it's based it's the story of five brothers, one of whom we've already met, this warrior named Arjuna. But the central figure is his oldest brother Yudhistra who was a young king at the beginning of the story. And uh, early on in this epic 
story about what the lives of these five brothers who will be in, eventually involved in a terrible war. Um, they, Eudistra, the king, the eldest of the five brothers, conceives the idea that he wants to become emperor of the known world. And his brothers sally forth, conquer all the surrounding kingdoms and far-flung kingdoms they can hear of. And very shortly, he basically succeeds. And he's poised to become the king of all kings. And uh, he's going to have a formal ceremony that will install him uh, as this emperor of the known world. And just before that ceremony takes place, uh, his envious cousin named Diodna uh, challenges him to a dice game. And Eudistra is an the king Eudistra is an unusual figure for a Westerner as a central hero because he's got brothers who are great warriors. But Eudistra's real commitment in life is to understand moral duty and how to fulfill it. And so he's not a dramatic character in our normal sense. He's a figure who's struggling for moral understanding and, and moral perfection. And he's very self-composed and righteous. And suddenly when he's invited by his envious cousin, Diodina, to a dice match, he seems to lose his normal character. And um, he, become, he manifests all of a sudden a terrible gambling addiction and uh, proceeds there 21 throws of the dice and he loses everyone in a row to escalating stakes finally losing his entire kingdom and being forced with his brothers and their communal wife into exile and all of this takes place in a magnificent palace called maya's palace um, and the way i reinterpret the epic um, that whole dice match is a bit of an illusion. Maya's palace is a palace, secretly a palace of illusion, um, because we think that the, the, the heroes think that Eudistra is the king of all kings. And readers of the epic normally you know, take it for granted he's the king of all kings. But this dice match actually reveals that um, that's an illusion in the sense that when he develops this terrible gambling addiction, and even though it's clear that the game is rigged after he's, you know, loses seven, eight, nine throws the dice in a row, he still can't stop himself from gambling. He's out of control. And if he it can't even escape the control of his own emotions, then he's not really sovereign of anything. It's his addictive emotions that are running the show. So it's actually an illusion that he's king of kings. In, in, matter, in fact, he's not the king of anything. And so I sort of make the argument that when he loses the, the dice match and is thrown into exile, that's actually a good thing because he's being exiled from a palace of illusion that was holding him stagnant from his journey of self-realization and perfection and understanding uh, morality. It's a very interesting situation for him to be in because uh, he, this palace, where it, it, you know, I see this palace as being the ego or the world. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, as our world has become more and more materialistic, it's as if uh, Maya's palace has 
become larger and larger until it's like the labyrinth that Conosus in uh, Crete that uh, Theseus couldn't find his way out of without uh, Ariadne's thread. But we don't have Ariadne's thread. We're wandering around in here. And the more we eat the world, the more unstable it becomes until finally, like it or not, we're headed toward being kicked out of the palace altogether. And not, now, not in a good way. <laughs> not in a good way at all. Not at all. No. I mean, I just uh, flew into Los Angeles a short time ago uh, in the into the teeth <clears throat> of a hurricane. I tried to avoid the storm and, and, and changed my flight. The storm promptly sped up and I ended up coming in to the hurricane and it was perfectly okay. And as I was flying in, there was also an earthquake and uh, there are storms all over the world. And years ago, I wrote a book called Superstorm that predicted that this would happen. And it was of course scorned. Uh, but we are in a situation where Maya's palace is trembling around us. How did, Richard, how did we end up here? You have such an interesting book, material in your book about the rise of materialism and in the industrial world. How did we end up in Maya's palace? Yeah, well, just backing up a little bit for a second to the Mahabharata, when Yudhishthira aspires to become the king of kings, up until then, he wasn't concerned with power and wealth. He was concerned with figuring out his moral obligations in the world and how to better fulfill them. But in Maya's palace, he becomes uh, abnormally strongly ego identified. Um, he's, um, and that leads him to, uh, the, the ego is basically the way I interpret it is the, the process of uh, you know, perceiving ourselves as a small little separate me cut off from uh, psychologically and materially from everything around me. Um, and it's based, the ego is basically the process of unconsciously erecting a boundary that keeps us sense bound off from the world. And when we're cut off from the world, we feel empty inside. And in Yudhishthira's case, it leads him to insatiable craving for power and wealth, which then gets even worse and becomes an uncontrollable addiction. And um, to some extent, I think that's what's happened in the modern world. There's features of, um, of how the world has evolved over the past few centuries that have made us more strongly ego identified, more cut off from one another in the sense that we're a bound little self, and therefore more craving for things outside of ourselves, which leads to the materialism that you've described as the modern Maya's palace. But um, where this gets going um, historically um, is about 400 years ago uh, with the birth of global capitalism. And I, I uh, stumbled onto it by um, taking note of something that historians have been aware of, but haven't uh, reflected on what it, what it implies about the kind of people we are. Um, you know, if you look about the, the early period of the birth of capitalism and uh, the role, central role of Northwest Europe of uh, England and the Netherlands and parts of France and bringing this about, 
um, you, you see two things happening simultaneously. Um, for one, you, for the first time, begin to get a mass consumer society in which instead of being kind of content with subsistence economies that meet basic needs, suddenly lots of people are running around buying lots of stuff and trying to figure out how to get enough money to be able to do that. So there's a sudden spike in kind of consumer insatiability. It's born for the first time. And at the same time that's going on, um, there's a massive increase in the consumption of addictive substances. If you look at the pre-industrial global economy, a, a very substantial part of it is moving addictive stimulants around the planet. So that in fact, the pre-industrial North Atlantic slave economy was substantially directed towards producing uh, addictive substances. So they were growing sugar in the Caribbean, tobacco in Virginia and the Carolinas, and coffee in Brazil, and making rum from the sugar. And this was catering to newly emerged addictive cravings that had come about in Europe. And uh, you know, my insight, economy, I mean, historians have known there was a, you know, a simultaneous birth of consumerism and that it included a big increase in the consumption of addictive substances, but they haven't put it together with what we now know about the psychology of addiction, which is that addiction is understood as a, some kind of disorder in psychological development. And it occurred to me that if you have two forms of intense craving emerging in the same place at the same time, meaning mass consumer insatiability emerging at the same time as addiction, and it, if addiction is understood as a developmental disorder, maybe consumer insatiability is a disorder in psychological development as well. Well, I and, think it is exactly that. Uh, yeah. We're going to have to take a brief break, and we'll be right back. Today on Dreamland, we're talking to Richard Sklove. His book, Escaping Maya's Palace, Decoding an Ancient Myth to Heal the Hidden Madness of Modern Civilization. His website is richardsklove.com. Uh, you can go on his website to explore his fascinating extra extracurricular activity as a photographer and also to get deeper into his books and his work in general. And let's now move a little bit back to the, and I, I dread trying to pronounce it because I, I always get these things wrong, but my listeners are used to that. Back to the Mahabharata. Yes? No. Mahabharata, but it's- Mahabharata. Okay. I'm going to, I'm trying to get it right. I, I want to get it right. <laughs> Mahabharata. And um, you get into the, this idea early in the book of the it is a that it is a psycho spiritual allegory now and it as you i read it i was amazed at the incredible insight into the human psyche that it represented because it's old how old is it yeah it's it's <clears throat> roughly 2,000 years old, and it's like a number of texts, ancient texts out of the Hindu and Buddhist worlds that, uh, and, and the, the, you know, the Sufi Islamic mystical world as well, that, you know, millennia ago, 
there were sages in various cultures who figured out things about psychological development that our society is still struggling to comprehend. I thought it was quite amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, in the, the way the text reflects stages of psycho-spiritual development? Because it offers a pathway out of Maya's palace. It offers a kind of freedom that we are desperate to, we're desperate for this now, we're desperate. We have to we have to escape the addiction or the planet's gonna die. I mean, it could not be more desperate than this. So tell us a little bit about the way it relates to the stages of psycho-spiritual development. Well, the, the way I interpret it, the, the Mahabharata, this giant epic, it's divided into 18 volumes. And I interpret those as 18 stages in psychological and spiritual development. Um, and one of the things that's fascinating about it, I mean, there it, it privileges the development, moral adult moral development. That's really the metric it's using to uh, uh, assess the progress of the protagonist towards perfection and understanding and fulfilling moral obligations. Now, now uh, when you say adult moral development, yeah, can you define that for us? Well, what they do in the book, it's a progression that's not entirely different from what modern moral uh, moral development theory would say. I mean, early on, the uh, the five protagonists' understanding of morality is primarily their understandings of their moral obligations to their extended family, and uh, and then when in the Bhagavad Gita, which happens in volume six of the 18 volumes that we've, we've already discussed, um, that's when Krishna is telling Arjuna, it's time to move on from your moral obligations just to your family, to your wider responsibilities as a member of the warrior caste. And uh, then after the, this terrible war occurs, it's an 18 day war in in the course of which several million soldiers die and only 11 combatants survive. And at the end of that war, which uh, in volume 12, um, Yudhistra, the, the young king, uh, is feeling terrible remorse about uh, this, this cataclysmic destruction of human life. And he goes on to explore, you know, moves past just caste responsibilities as a as a ruler to uh, exploring higher ethical principles such as uh, the duty to do perform acts for the benefit of all society. And um, if you want, I could tell a little story about what at the end of the epic, what uh, perfection in in in. Um, moral intuition looks like. Yeah, oh, please, please definitely do that. Yeah. Uh, there's really a, beautiful, a beautiful story at the very end of the Mahabharata where the five brothers, uh, including Yudhishthira and Arjuna, have uh, relinquished their kingdom and they're taking a final journey up to the top of the Himalayas. And as they're going along, a stray dog finds them and, and trails with them. And this is, um, the dog is an unusual 
animal in Hinduism. Hinduism uh, reveres lots of animals as uh, almost deities. There's a monkey god named Hanuman and Ganesha is a famous elephant-headed god. But dogs are not held in high regard in ancient Hinduism because they're, uh, they'll eat anything and they're considered non-discriminating and, and therefore impure because they don't distinguish between pure and impure foods. So this animal that's considered like a stray mutt and quite impure, low in the spiritual hierarchy of the Hindu imagination follows along. And one by one, Yudhishthira's four other brothers die on their way up the, to the top of the Himalayas. And this is the, <clears throat> really because the five brothers represent different aspects of a single psyche. And we're moving towards uh, kind of away from duality and multiplicity into unity and, and Yudhishthira, the parts, the other parts, the brothers fall away and it's just Yudhishthira. <clears throat> and he gets to the top of the Himalayas and the gate of heaven and Lord Indra, who's the king of the gods, comes out and says to Yudhishthira, you can enter heaven now, but lose the dog. And up until this point in his life, Yudhishthira has always wanted to know, you know, wanted to do the right thing, but he struggled to know what that is. And he's always talking to the people around him to try to figure out what his moral obligations are. He's talking with Krishna, he's talking with his brothers, talking with their wife, talking with various sages, and he's trying to always work it out. And now he's at the gates of heaven, and the king of the gods has told them the right thing to do, enter but lose the dog. And without thinking about it, without talking to anybody, despite what the king of the gods has told them, Yudhishthira says, I can't do it. I can't desert this animal, another living creature. It's not my dog, but all dogs, I mean, all ant creatures deserve equal respect. And so God, you're wrong. I'm not going to abandon this dog. Instead, I'll forsake my entry into heaven rather than do that. And at that moment, this impure animal, the dog, transmutes into Lord Dharma, who is the god of morality. And uh, it's a it's a beautiful teaching that the that divinity, if you're looking with the right eyes, with divine eyes, divinity resides even in the most impure features of the world. And with seeing the impure dog uh, as uh, Lord Dharma. Uh, it, and and realizing that he, you know, siding with the dog against the king of the gods, Yudhishthira at that moment has perfected moral intuition. He's seen without talking with anybody what his moral obligations are and does the right thing despite what the king of the gods has told him. And with that, Lord Indra says, okay, now you can enter heaven. And my wife, Anne, was a, a great had a great affection for dogs. And she used to tell a wonderful story about dog. I believe this must have been a, it might be a, it was a story from the Native American traditions. I think it might have been Sue, but I'm not, I don't remember. It was that God decided that humans and, and animals were so very different that he would build, create a great divide between them. And he opened up a, a, a great canyon and with all of the animals on one side and man on the other, and just at the last moment, dog jumped across to be with man. <laughs> and she also used to say, when I asked her, my wife was, my listeners know what she was. She was quite an extraordinary human being. And uh, I asked her once, 
what is compassion? And I think it very much relates to what you just said. Her response was very simple and not direct. She said simply, each of us is all we have. And when you think of that and him looking down at that dog and knowing that the dog's situation is exactly the same as his, that dog is all he has. And he either goes with the king or he does not right now. I understand this very well. I think it's an extremely moving story. But how do we enact it in our lives, Richard? How, what in our lives? Because our lives are offering us all the time situations where we can either push the dog aside or accept the dog. Well, of course, at the individual level, we can you know, struggle to decide, like you distro, what at any moment, what is my moral obligation? And will I let that take precedence over, you know, my private inclinations about what would be fun <laughs> at the moment? Yeah. Or um, what would be maybe even necessary? Because quite often, I mean, this world is filled with the blood of those who were victims of, of others' necessity. Uh, the German people in the form of the Nazis decided it was necessary to kill all of the Jews. Yeah. And what about, well, you know, speaking of necessaries, we've come to the end of this particular segment, free, free Dreamlanders, free listeners. And so please listen up and enjoy these commercials very, very profoundly and act on the, their attempts to lure you. We're talking to Richard Sclove. Richard's new book is Escaping Maya's Palace, Decoding an Ancient Myth to Heal the Hidden Madness of Modern Civilization. His website is richardsclove.com, where I believe you can buy the book through the website, can't you? Yeah, or you can also go, <clears throat> the book has a website too, which is escapingmayaspalace.com. Ah, escapingmayaspalace.com. It's very worthwhile because Maya's palace is more, it, it's, a, it's, it's a, a very appealing and deceptive illusion, but it's also an incredible weight. Being in Maya's palace is like carrying a great load of rocks on your back, which you think are something quite wonderful until you drop them. And how do we drop them? How do we? Get out of here. Well, <clears throat> you were asking me a moment ago about what we can do in daily life. To yeah, that's right. Well, I'm sort of continuing on that. Yeah, theme. I mean, but uh, my answer initially was just, you know, you can try to be moral, but that's not the answer that I'm pursuing in the book. That's talking about what you can do as an individual in your daily interactions. But I'm looking in the book more at the macro social forces that over the past few centuries have made us more intensely ego identified and more in more in, uh, insatiable as consumers than humans have previously been. And uh, I identify several major forces that are responsible for this. One is the disruptiveness of global capitalism as, as firms are continually competing for new products. They're putting old businesses out of business and 
uh, generally the operations of the of the global political economy have tended to weaken our social relations, the stability of communities, and our experiential integration into the worlds of nature and spirit. And this uh, constant disruptiveness of capitalism has an effect on our psychological and moral development and makes us more intensely uh, egotistical than is, I think, normal throughout history. And that's a strong claim, but I, I provide evidence for it in the book. And, uh, yeah. and uh, so it's, you know, and, and then the also along with the disruptiveness of capitalism, there's the strong inequalities that go along with it that make those who are at the bottom of, of the socioeconomic hierarchies more susceptible for, to the disruption. And, and then there are modern technologies that also have the effect of experientially tending to separate us from strong face-to-face -face social relations and experiential engagement with nature. So in order to become more moral, I think we'd ultimately have to look at the, the social forces uh, that are that uh, have been making us more ego, strongly ego identified and take steps to dampen down those forces. Well, I think that one of the things that that is happening, of course, is the internet, which has a number of effects. First is it artificially amplifies egos. In other words, if you go on, Facebook or YouTube, or you might only have, or twi Twitter or whatever it's now called, Y, Z. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, you go on any of those things and you can put it out there as if you were a cultural, a center of cultural force, even though you may only have 12 followers on Twitter, even though you may never, your YouTube channel might not be very big. It makes you feel very big. And in addition to this, there is the fact that these systems, Facebook, YouTube, all of them addict you to anger. They addict you to anger because the algorithms are designed to give you more of whatever you watch, the result of which is you get you you watch a, a something that is uh, uh, some crazy thing, say about well, I'm not even going to go into what it is because there'll be an eruption of that's not crazy because <laughs> we've we've gone crazy, we've been driven crazy. My friends, the visitors, I don't know if you know about that side of my life, but they said long ago that as the planet declined in its ability to support us, more and more human beings would go mad. And I'm seeing it all around me. I'm literally seeing it all around me. In South Texas, where I'm from, there is literally a spreading terror because students in the local schools in, uh, in Seguin and uh, the other little towns around there are starting to threaten more violence, such as the sh similar to the shooting that happened in one of the towns just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, excuse me, where so many kids were needlessly killed. And now uh, there's been just a short time ago, uh, an eruption of gunfire on a school bus. And you know, you have to think that a society that's doing this is going crazy. 
they're right. It is going crazy. What well, do we do, Richard? I mean, how do we escape from Maya's palace? Because we're we're chained in here. Well, <clears throat> it's hard. It's hard to do. But the, the good news is, I described you know three basic social forces that are have driven us into stronger ego identification, which is the disruptiveness of global capitalism, uh, enormous inequalities, and technologies you know, separating us from healthy relationships with one another. It happens, I mean, my concern in the book is with conditions under for which people have equal, you know, roughly equal and ample opportunities for psychological and spiritual self-realization. But the forces that are preventing that are forces that certain organized social groups are combating for other reasons. I mean, there are groups trying to for for healthy social reasons, trying to combat inequalities, uh, we you know we've tried to uh, you know find equality for women and people of different sexual identities and different races, and there there are groups working on this, and there are lots of groups working to combat the disruptiveness of global capitalism. I mean, some of the most uh, effective for for our purposes to hear would be groups that are promoting more locally self-reliant and diverse economies because a more uh, diverse and self-reliant local economy is buffered against the disruptiveness of global capitalism. So the, the good news is that there are organized groups, typically they're kind of more on the politically progressive side of the, of the aisle, that are trying for other reasons of their own, whether it's social justice or sustainability, to combat the same social forces that are driving us into being more egoistic than is really good for us. Well, you know, when I um, started really getting deep into the book, I thought to myself, ah, a lefty um, uh, dumping on capitalism. And I thought, you know, uh, that is something I've heard before. And then I thought again, we're coming into a very different different era than we were in before, an era where growth isn't going to be something we can do. And it's not going to be a matter of choosing anything. It's going to be a matter of nature no longer letting it work. In other words, we literally can't keep expanding. And the caterpillar at that point usually drops off the devastated plant and uh, grows a, a chrysalis and emerges as a butterfly. And without the buzzwords like capitalism and progressivism and all of those things that I think kind of perhaps get in the way a little bit of actual the kind of change we need, I have to ask us, us and you the question of how do we transition as the earth compels us from a, a world in the developed world, it's already like this pretty much in the undeveloped world, but in the developed world, which isolates us and puts us all on a path to gaining more and more material and at all times and makes us angry at anyone who disagrees with us. 
how do we get off that path and onto a path of survival, which is a, a community-related path? Because we're not, we don't have a choice. This is going to happen anyway. The earth is, the support that we had all of these years is over. Yeah. Okay, give, give us some wisdom here. <clears throat> I think there's several components to this complicated question. I mean, I, I just want to back up to say that there's a way that my critique is not at all a standard leftist critique of capitalism because the the standard critique of capitalism from on the left is always that there's winner winners and losers and we have to you know combat capitalism to uplift the losers my argument's quite different than that um because uh, i think there's actually something to it there is some there is significant inequality and injustice in the modern world but i'm not talking about winners and losers because i'm saying in terms of how uh, the global economy has adversely affected our psychological development. There are no winners. Everybody suffers the um, stunting and distortion of psychological development, which also makes us all more susceptible to a wide variety of, of medical ailments, um, addiction, depression, anxiety, and lots of physical ailments that are uh, become more prevalent because of those mental illnesses. I mean, addiction, you know, is response plays a major role in leading to obesity and diabetes, for instance. So, um, and then the same forces that are that that are driving egoism and that egoism in the form of insatiability in turn uh, drives the expansion of of the global economy. Those same forces lead to the major macro problems that you know such as climate change that you've alluded to um now the first part of your question i mean the second part of your question though was what can we do about it and there's things we can do you know as individuals and at the local level and then there's more ambitious things that uh can down the road happen at the, at the more macro social level but you know, as I've already said, I think at the local level, striving to create more locally self-reliant economies that are less dependent on global trade um, is is a, a major step that can be undertaken at the local level without permission or, or resources coming from national government or international institutions. Uh, communities can and do pursue that. Uh, on their own with their existing resources. In terms of more macro things, I mean, you began a little while ago talking about <clears throat> how the internet and social media um, inflates egos and and uh, takes people into places of great anger. I mean, there, uh, you and I are old enough that we grew up with the internet. Internet and the you know, if you remember the history of the internet, it gets born in the late 60s as a Pentagon project for communication. But in, for the first 20, uh, well, 25 years of the internet into the mid 1990s, the internet was ex pretty much exclusively an educational and civic medium. And there was no space on it whatsoever for commerce. And in fact, if anybody tried to sell you anything in the internet during those days, you would be ostracized from, from your whatever internet communities you were part of. And then from the 90s on, all of that went away and the internet became dominantly a, 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 
a medium dominated by commerce and the pursuit of profit. And so, for instance, social media are not designed to uh, create healthy human relationships. They're designed to maximize advertising sales. Well, right. And the moment that Steve Jobs, uh, not Steve Jobs, uh, Jeff Zuckerberg uh, discovered what? (laughs) Mark Zuckerberg. Is, what is his name? Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I, they're all they're all sort of bound together in one <laughs> one right. catastrophic vortex in my mind. Mark Zuckerberg discovered that if you make people mad, you get more clicks. Yeah, that was a, a that was an absolutely watershed moment in the history of modern society, and there i don't think there's any way out of it because except by going cold turkey on the on on the whole thing because uh and you, you don't want to, i've thought of detaching my entire broadcasting and website effort from social media but if i do that then it's going to wither away so i'm very careful with social media i don't put things out there that are designed to infuriate people or confuse them or make them feel like they're they're being somehow robbed or in this conspiracy theory kind of thing the result of which i have a very relatively small website compared to what i would have if i was telling a lot of lies Uh, my wife used to say the human being loves a lie and it's very true now let's let's look at something in a slightly different way well, before we go on, we have reached the end of the free part of the show, which I now runs 45 minutes instead of a full hour so that we can get more deeply into this without any breaks. So Free Dreamlanders, I would like to thank you very much for being with us, and we'll see you again next week. Now, we're in a situation where we may experience severe disruptions in things like food supply very soon, possibly starting even next year, because the world food supply is so fragile that if there is serious, there are serious weather issues in South America and North America at the same time. And right now, South America, the central South America is not having a winter. It's still going up above 100 degrees Fahrenheit at a time when it should be in the low 80s. And there's a huge heat dome over the southern and southwestern United States, extending all the way up into the Midwest. And it may or may not end uh, with the coming of autumn. And if it does end, it's going to end very violently. All of this kind of disruption leads to less food. What do we do then? How do we, under the circumstances of not having enough food, do we find our way out of this trap and into a new kind of human community? Because that's what we're going to need to do. Well, I mean, my the vision in the book, it's, you know, I'm I'm looking out over decades because I'm looking at a, a problem in terms of distorted psychological and spiritual development that has unfolded over several centuries. And it's just unrealistic. You could solve that problem 
uh, turn it back in a year or two. So I'm looking at a strategy that plays out over decades. At the same time, um, it could it could this strategy could inform short run decisions so that for addressing food issues and for um, beginning to scale, you know, trying to scale back more, much more aggressively on our consumption of fossil fuels and establishing a, an energy economy based on renewables. That can all be done in ways that are more or less healthy for our psychological development. So, you know, as I've already said, addressing food issues when you can through more local production for local consumption, um, that would be a way of, you know, addressing food in the short run that also would be more consistent with conditions that are favorable to psychological development. Similarly, when you're deploying renewables, um, the natural inclination is to uh, have giant solar arrays or windmill arrays that are feeding into nationally integrated electric grids. And that can work potentially for uh, reducing fossil fuel consumption, but it doesn't work for uh, it's not the best way to reestablish healthier community relationships, which could be done through more community scale and community owned and managed uh, renewable energy arrays. Well, you know, uh, I think to myself that within five years, you could have a situation in the United States where a lot of people can't afford food because it's simply not available, but they do have guns. And I'm wondering how we could find a viable sense of community under circumstances like that. Well, I think we're getting outside of my expertise in the scope of the book, although <laughs> I will say that um, provide, you know, providing a, a stronger social safety net floor is obviously a good way to address uh, scarcity issues. I mean, on a global level, you know, for instance, the disruption of wheat, of wheat export from Ukraine is increasing the cost of, of wheat and wheat products globally. That hits primarily in the developing world because when the price goes up, it, the you know, commodity like wheat will flow to the wealthier countries. And so it's the more impoverished countries that are going to feel the brunt of that first and most strongly. But in any case, in this society, um, you know, the, for for inequalities, you have to provide a better, a stronger floor against immiseration, and uh, and that means you know some redistribution from the top to, to down toward the bottom. And my feeling actually is that if you raise the floor. <laughs> that below which people can't sink. If you raise the floor, people at the top might be willing to take a little sacrifice if we know that we're prevented from falling through the floor. <laughs> that's well put, uh, because that's exactly what we do need to do, or we will need to do much sooner than uh, is understood at the present time. And I can assure you, when I wrote Superstorm, I went through this very carefully and the scenario is unfolding pretty much exactly as uh, I thought it would in that book. Only it, people, unfortunately, there was a movie made of it called The Day After Tomorrow that compressed the whole process into a single week. And now when the media looks at it, they say, 
well, yes, something like this is happening, but not it's not going to happen in a single week. Ha, ha, ha. No, it's not, but it could happen over a period of two or three years. That's the problem. Yeah. The planet has, in the past, experienced radical reconstruction of its climatary patterns very suddenly over a matter of just a couple of years. And I'm very concerned that that's what we're up against now, that that's we're in the process of this happening and we're going to see so much change in the next few years that it, the way we are now, is going to be just almost unrecognizable to us. Well, I think that just experientially, I think this year was a tipping point in terms of people's experience of climate change. I mean, if you pay attention to the scientific literature, you know, it's been discussed for more than 100 years and, and very intensively discussed for 50 years in the scientific literature, but it always felt hypothetical. It felt like computer models making predictions for farther out. Suddenly this year, it's sort of around the entire planet, everybody can see and taste climate change. And so yeah. I think it's a real tipping point in our experience and therefore in consciousness where it moved from being hypothetical to something that we experience on a you know, that everybody's experiencing it in some way or another. Let me, um, let me ask you this in going back to the, the book itself and its authors, do we know much about them? Because they had unbelievable insight into the human psyche and also a way of communicating about it that we had lost because the book really is a it's it's almost like a novel in a way a gigantic novel that it offers a roadmap out of a world of illusion in which we all feel trapped who were these people yeah well we don't know we 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 know roughly that um as ancient sacred texts go the mahabharata is unusual in that it's known to have had many hundreds of authors. What, one reason it's so big is that everybody in India who felt like it felt like they could add to it. So um, it was it was created probably over something like a thousand years and many hundreds of people contributed to it. But what you can infer is that the core story of psychological and spiritual self-realization, which as you say, is so, dramatically impressive what they what they understood about the psyche and how it can develop in healthy or unhealthy ways. I mean, I, I can own though the, the authors aren't identified, but you have to assume that the core authors were basically highly self-realized people who knew about the higher stages of human self-realization because they had traveled the journey that they're describing in the epic in allegorical terms. It was a it was a journey that they had gone through themselves and so could look back and explain to us who have not gone very far in that journey what what the stages look like. Um, and, and it's impressive. I mean, one of the impressive things about the Mahabharata is that, like I said, it's 18 volumes. I interpret that as 18 stages in in self-realization. Well, in book two, of the 18 books, the heroes become misidentified with the ego. That's the stage, you know, when Yudhishthira becomes insatiably craving for power and wealth and then 
terribly addicted to gambling. And that's basically the stage that the modern, modern world has put all of us in, where we're strongly ego identified. But that's just book two of the 18 books. The war, which happens in the middle books of the Mahabharata, books six through nine, the war is basically the decisive struggle between the soul and the ego for supremacy in the psyche. And at the end of book nine, the soul, which is represented by these five brothers, with Yudhishthira's king, the soul decisively kills, kills off the ego. So in book two, the protagonists are misidentified with the ego, but at the end of book two, they escape from that. And book nine, they, uh, they kill the ego, but then they still have nine more volumes to complete their self-realization. And one of the things that's neat about that for us is in the modern, if you sort of, in the modern world, we sort of think, oh, if you transcend the ego and disidentify from it, you're enlightened. But uh, the Mahabharata says, no, actually, that's not true. You know, because they, the protagonists disidentify from the ego in book two, but they're still uh, 16 volumes away from complete enlightenment. And what's neat about that is that um, it, it opens up a huge middle terrain that, um, you know, enlightenment is very rare. It's, you know, historically something that happens to a few people out of millions. Um, but the Mahabharata is saying, well, actually, that, that may be true, that, that going all the way is really hard, but there's an interesting middle terrain that our societies cut us off from, but that's really quite accessible and doesn't demand heroic achievements in the spiritual realm. What is this middle terrain? It's the terrain that they're moving through when they disidentify from the ego and are then progressing into higher stages of, of moral development. Um, in in book three, they're doing their their book two is when they disidentify from the ego. In book three, they're doing serious spiritual practice. In what sort of spiritual practice? Um, they're doing medita They're doing medita meditation and really um, the 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 you know the Bhagavad Gita, which we already discussed, just uh, lays out three basic paths of spiritual practice of bhakti, which is devotional practice, karma yoga, which is ethical action in the world, and yana yoga, which is sort of studying ancient, studying spiritual texts seriously and, and meditation. Um, in book three, they do a certain amount of meditation, but really their basic spiritual practices throughout the 18 volumes are devotion, uh, devotion to often Krishna, there, who's there, the uh, God in human form, who's in their life. It's devotion, but above all, it's it's karma yoga. It's ethical action in the world. Ethical action in the world, uh, trying to behave ethically, is a practice for spiritual self-realization that takes you towards eventual perfection in moral intuition, which is what Yudhishthira achieves right at the entrance to heaven when he won't abandon the dog. That's really fascinating and wonderful. The story of Yudhishthira and the dog is so powerful because it's, um, you know, the dog is not just a dog. It is all of the helpless. It's all of those who will be, and there are going to be plenty of them in this world. 
It's it's kind of interesting that one of the earliest stories in the Mahabharata also involves a dog, and it's set forward in time that great warrior Arjuna he has a he has a great grandson who's a a, a king and one is one of uh, some of his brothers abuse a dog, and so the epic st starts off in in volume one. It starts off with a little story about a dog being abused for no good reason. And it ends with King Yudhishthira sacrificing his whole journey towards self-realization for the sake of a dog. So interesting, um, be, because it, we, you know there's a key here to how once we have come to know our egos, which is to say, to be able to see our egos somewhat from the outside to see that Whitley is not all of me, Richard is not all of you, then it's possible to move into the world in a new, entirely new way. And it gets right back to my wife's statement about compassion. Uh, because if you are compassionate, you don't, you, you give the dog whatever you can to help the dog on its own way. Now, isn't the dog in a sense also part of us as well as the poor and helpless people around us in the society, including by the way, those are who are still trapped in ego because they are the most, they are the most poverty stricken and the most helpless. But isn't it also true that it's part of us? The dog I, is part of us. I think that's fair. You could sort of say it's, our lesser impure self. I mean, when you were talking about, I thought eloquently about moments when we can step outside of our own ego and see ourselves as more than that. I, I, I tend to think a lot of us experience that in daily life when we sort of say, uh, you can you can act out of what I want and need. I need I need a hamburger right now. I want a new car. Or you can sort of act out of your soul's yearning, and there's a sense of a, a deeper place in ourself where we become more our true self and and pursue, you know, what we sense is what we were meant to do in some higher purpose. And I think when we sort of think of ourselves as getting in touch with our soul's yearning and pursuing that, that is when we are momentarily stepping out of, of identifying with our ego self. They knew this so long ago. They lived in a, in those days, in a, a society that was vulnerable to war attack from the outside, but at the same time was obviously a very highly, um, uh, highly evolved society, a, a very strong culture that could produce people that had this level of insight into the human psyche. Um, you know, I wonder if, uh, what is that city that's so old in India called? Is it Mohenjo Daro? Um, I think that's a ruin up in, in the, up toward the Northwest, yeah. well, the, the, the ruins, an area where the ancient, Indus Valley uh, civilization thrived, you know, many it, millennia ago. Interestingly enough, it's been recently discovered by archaeologists that there's no sign of hierarchy 
in the city. In other words, there's no palaces. There's no, everybody seems to live pretty much at an equal level. And uh, there's, and I'm just wondering if the wisdom that must have been gained in those days uh, was handed down. And that, because I'm, you know, these scholars and writers from 2000 years ago had fantastic insight into human nature. And at a time when there was no such thing as psychology or sociology or anthropology or any of those things, but their insights were really remarkable. And I'm, I keep coming back to the mis mystery of who they were. Well, I mean, my, this is just my intuition. I don't know who they were. Nobody, nobody really does, except my guess is that while their psychological insights might have been existed in that civilization going back several thousand years earlier, I doubt if they, the authors of the Mahabharata were working off of ancient texts. I think they were working out of their own experience, lived experience. Um, I think their wisdom they found not in text, but they found it within themselves. That's really very interesting. Because if they found it within themselves, it means that the world in which they lived gave them that offered them that opportunity. Yeah. I, th I think I think it did, and, and it's not that everybody in that society was enlightened. I mean, I imagine that, you know, sages of their level of attainment were probably rare in that world too, but, um, but they didn't live in a social order that was optimized to prevent ego transcendence, which is the world we live in. So yeah. it was, it was a world that, I don't want to over-idealize it. There are parts of it that wouldn't probably be very conducive to our sense of uh, well-being, but it, it was a world that uh, was not constructed to be antithetical to psychological and spiritual growth. Our world is optimized. Our world depends on us failing in self-realization because the global economy we've built uh, is driven, the driving force behind it is consumer insatiability. And if we were all to move beyond ego identification, insatiability would, would diminish and the global economy would collapse because it's built to be, uh, to feed off of our insatiability, which in turns, you know, powers the forces that make sure we stay insatiable and stay stuck in our little ego selves. When, um, you know, I read another book called The Master and His Emissary, yeah. by, which you, you don't refer to in your book, but uh, I don't think it probably hadn't been published when you were writing no, it. I, I cite it once, I do. You do cite it once. Yeah. Well, I thought to myself, I think you know, you know Stash DeRola. Yeah. Yeah, who's a dear friend of mine. And I, I said to Stash, we need to get Richard Slove, Ian McKittrick, Jeff Kripal, and I mentioned a few others together at your castle and to have a, 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 a colloquy. And I hope we manage to do that. It would certainly be wonderful. Well, I'm, I'm in touch with Jeff Kripal, so that, that, that door is open. McGilchrist, uh, I, was, I emailed him and, and you know, he, said, he asked for a copy of my book, which I sent him, but he's an awfully busy guy these days. So who knows? Yes, he is. What, what he what he has time to read, but I do think that our books 
are quite complementary, and I yes. think uh, a serious dialogue with with Ian McGilchrist, I think would, um, I think we would see ways that our arguments are complementary, and yet, and between the two of us, we would also discover gaps that would that we that are, we're each blind to, and see where there's more work to be done. And I think that Jeff's addition would be important because he. In his book, Superhumanities, he holds both of your books in 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 a kind of in a kind of balanced relationship, and he sees the the importance of both. So you know, the three of you are together, almost a potentially a revolution in in human thought, and and in human society. And I'm thinking that maybe if we were back two thousand years ago, you would have been all furiously working on books in the Mahabharata. Well, if you get, if you, if you and Stash can bring me together with uh, Jeff and Ian, I'm, I'm all on board for that. Well, I'm going to try. And uh, we, uh, Stash thinks he can get some money for it to do it. And I hope he can. I mean, I, hopefully we'll do it in the spring um, because he'll come back to the States in um, uh December, I believe, or, or, or November or December, and then uh, go return in um, to uh, the castle in June. And at the castle, um, uh, he can, um, you know, in, we could do it sometime next summer, in other words. I said spring, but I meant summer. And incidentally, folks, if you want to visit Stash's castle, you can do it. It's Castle Balthus, B-A-L-T-H-U-S. Uh, you can find it on the internet and you can make an appointment and go there and uh, visit the castle. Uh, I think you'd find it absolutely fascinating. And Richard, you've never been there, have you? No, I was no. hoping to get there this summer, but it didn't work out. Yeah, I know. It. It's difficult. Um, but <laughs> it's a remarkable place and um, huge uh, and filled with the most interesting alchemical uh, paintings around the walls. It's obviously the castle of a, of a, of a, a person who was well-versed in alchemy in the distant past. Okay, now let's see. I want to go on to... to, uh, to... I can just say a little bit about Ian McGill. Yeah, yeah, please do. Master and his emissary. I mean, that's a... Uh, basically a story about um, a transition over the past few hundred years from a more um, a balanced relationship between the two brain hemispheres to left left brain the more analytical less holistic brain becoming dominant and the ill effects that come of that i mean it's a it's a compelling argument and at least in that book mcgilchrist doesn't really have a an explanation of why that shift towards left brain dominance occurred. I think that my book uh, potentially offers an answer, some answers to the question of, of how and why it occurred, what the macro social forces were. Well, exactly. That's why I want to get the two of you together so badly, because I want you to talk. I think we could really use a synthesis of your, 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 your two models, as, as it were. Right. And I think the gap for me when I think about them is it would be tempting to think that um, um, ego transcendence 
is uh, means moving back towards uh, right brain dominance. I have an idea that's oversimplified. That's where there's a gap and more work to do. I don't I don't know where ego transcendence fits into McGilchrist's model, um, and uh, finding out would be would be important. Well, you said earlier that enlightenment is very very rare. And my wife used to say that enlightenment is what happens when there's nothing left of us but love. Mm -hmm. And when you think of it that way, you, and you look at those in history who we do think were enlightened, that does seem to be correct. That is, but it, but if you try to take it on as a life aim, you realize there's a reason that there aren't very many people who are fully enlightened in this world. Knowledgeable, uh, but not enlightened. Yeah, and I think that, you know, on top of that, the forces in the in the world. So I mean, there are various you know spiritual teachers who, to me, who I, I I'm not in a position to assess, but there are various people in the modern world who look like they might have been enlightened for a little while, but the forces uh, dragging us down are so strong that even if if a few people become enlightened, very few seem to stay there very long. Well, exactly. They become uh, the commercial. They become part of the commercial flow. Yeah. And the next thing you know, yes, this person was enlightened, but now he's a business. And that's, it doesn't work. You can, you know, you can afford to buy all the crystals in the world if you, if you have enough followers, yeah. but that, that also means that you have, you have missed the mark. Yeah. And we all miss the mark. And perhaps that's part of why we're here. Because you don't learn by being perfect, you learn by struggle. And uh, that uh, Annie used to always say, the angels probably envy us because of our chance to struggle. And the angels would not have that chance because they are already there. I mean, in my own life, I've struggled with the effects of commerce. I, I've never worked in the, in, in the for-profit business world. I always wanted to work on constructive social transformation. But still, for many years, I ran a nonprofit activist think tank. But to, to do that, I had to raise money with grants from foundations. So there was a, even in the nonprofit world, there was a constant need to hustle for enough money to keep the enterprise going. Or now I've just written a book, Escaping Maya's Palace, about trying to escape from this world of, of insati consumer insatiability and all the ills that come from it. But I wrote the book and then books don't sell themselves in the modern world and you have to become a hustler to self-promote your book. Which yeah, that's why, puts, which is why you're here. A mental state that's the exact opposite of where I want to be. Exactly. And so I'm going to run the 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 crawl get it today at this moment it's the perfect and it's it's a it's a daunting book admittedly but it is also valuable because it does enable you as you read to see your place in Maya's palace as you will not see it in any other way and uh, in that sense it's a tremendous breakthrough you know, I think we're coming to the end of the show. I'm a little mixed up on the timing, but I, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure we're coming to the end of the show. So uh, I would like to thank you, Richard, very much for being with us. I do hope that we meet one day at Stash's palace. <laughs> the castle is hardly a palace. It's, um, it, 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 let's put it this way. When you have a 70-room home, 
maintenance is a kind of an iffy business. You only concentrate on certain rooms. Escaping Maya's palace, decoding an ancient myth to heal the hidden madness of modern civilization. You can look for it at Escaping Maya's Palace and probably many other places, including Barnes and Noble and Amazon and uh, Waterstones if you're in the UK and other places. Also, richardsclove.com. Richard is on a very brave and difficult journey because anyone who criticizes capitalism in the modern world is liable to get himself shot <laughs> if you go to the, if you go to the wrong the wrong town at the wrong time, all right. And yet at the same time, nature is going to do it for us. We don't really have to argue about it. It will happen on its own. Thank you, Richard. It's been a lovely time to have you on Dreamland. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>